You're listening to Crossroads International Church Podcast. Welcome. We hope this podcast will bless you from wherever you're listening to it. For more information, go to our website at xrgs.nl. Now, let's get into the podcast. All right. Good morning, Crossroads. And everybody online as well. It's good to be here with you all. And it's so nice to see we're filling back up again. I can clearly see people are returning from holiday. I hope you guys had a good time. If you're just joining us, we're in the middle of Missions Month, and we are asking ourselves that all-important question. How do we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, engage the world? Quite simple. As Christians, we fundamentally believe we are to make an impact and a difference in this world. And we're doing it this year by asking, who is my neighbor? And I'm not going to go through all of it, but in the beginning of the series, we started just looking at some stats, figuring out, figuring out that my neighbor is most likely somebody that looks and believes very, very differently than me. I think one in, oh, I can't even remember. one in four chance that my neighbor is a Hindu or a Buddhist, and one in five, sorry, Muslim, one in three almost by the year 2050, one in three chance that my neighbor would be Muslim. Obviously, in the Netherlands, those stats look a bit different. In the Netherlands, your neighbor, there's a 50% chance, more than 50% chance that your neighbor does not believe what you believe. In contrast, does not believe at all. And so next week, we'll be picking that up. So we started our series, we looked at Hinduism, looked at Buddhism, and today we are looking at Islam. And I'm extremely excited about today because Islam is like one of my favorite study subjects. And it's almost making me nervous because I'm so excited about it. So... If I get too excited, please just raise a hand, tell me to slow down, and I will do that. Um, but this is a very important question. And the reason why we're doing this is, as Christians, we know that Jesus commanded us, told us to love our neighbors. And I fundamentally believe that in order to love my neighbor, I need to understand who he is and where he comes from. And the better I understand him or her, the better I am able to love him or her. Right? So before I go into anything else... I do this every week. Please consider Alpha. <laughs> if you've not done so, please pray about it. Please pray about your neighbors, your colleagues, your family. If you know anybody who is curious about the Christian faith, please do invite them. All right? It's such a great moment, such a great opportunity for them to meet the person Jesus, the Lamb we just sang about so beautifully. And as we were singing that, I was just thinking on my sermon and realizing that that's kind of what I'm going to come down to is the slaughtered lamb of, of God, which is the turning point where we and our Muslim brothers and sisters fundamentally disagree upon. This is view of Jesus as the Son of God. Then I want to remind you on this Wednesday, actually, August 24th, um, we have a deeper night, and this series raises a lot of questions that I just don't have time to answer in the sermon. Questions on, do Christians have the only true revelation of truth? Or is there value in looking at these other religions, and do they have some value for us to think about? Right? That is an important question. What do we do as Christians with our exclusive claims? Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by Christ. These are important questions to wrestle with because it has an impact on how we relate to our brothers and sisters of another faith. Do we look at them as our equals or do we look down on them? And the way the church has answered this has been extremely problematic 
in history and has led to a lot of violence. I'm going to answer that question as well in this sermon. What do we do with religious violence? I've invited um, Professor Dr. Bernard Reitzma. Some of you might have known him. He has written a few books as well. He lived in the Middle East as well, in Lebanon for eight years. He's very specialized on the topic of Islam and Christianity and these relationships. But his real focus is what do we do with our exclusive faith as Christians within a pluralist society? Right, so he'll be leading this evening on, um, on Wednesday, and please sign up for that. I believe it's going to be really, really, really insightful. So then our sermons are just structured the way I structured the sermons. I start off with a scripture, right? Because, one, I'm a Christian theologian. I'm not an expert on these traditions, and we want to look at these different traditions from a Christian perspective, right? So I'm going to read a passage, and these passages that I read is kind of a counterpoint to my discussion on these other religions, all right? So I'm going to read the passage. Keep it in the back of your mind as I discuss Islam today. Pick up the counterpoints. What are the things that we say that differs from our, our Muslim brothers and sisters? Oh, my screen just jumped all over the place. Um, one second, sorry. Technology. Then I'll do a bit of an uh, uh, historical overview, um, just looking against the biblical timeline. Where does Islam fit in, uh, into our narrative, right, of what we understand? How does it fit in with our story of the gospel and so forth? I'll look at some points of agreement and some points of disagreement. All right. So if you have your Bible, I'll be reading two passages, one from Colossians and one from Galatians. The first one from Colossians 1 verses 15 to 20, only select verses. It will be on the screen as well. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, and by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. And in Galatians 2, We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because the works of the law, no one will be justified. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Let us pray. Hey, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we, we come together this morning to, to worship you, to, to look at your word and discover what it means to be your follower to discover what it means to, to love our neighbor. 
Lord, and I pray that we will have uh, an openness as we have this conversation where, where Islam is probably one of the most contentious subjects in our Western world. And Lord, I pray that regardless of where we sit on our views on it, Lord, that we all agree on this one thing, as Christians, as followers of you, that we are called to love our Muslim brothers and sisters. Help us do this today. Amen. So, Islam for me is something that is really personal. Because when I came to faith and started following Jesus, I at the same time discovered Islam. And as a student, and I think it was in one of Wilbur Smith's books, I don't quite remember, but it fascinated me. It intrigued me reading of the devotion of Muslims. And it triggered me asking questions about what it means to follow Jesus. Shouldn't Christians embody a same kind of devotion. And so I remember as a, as a student in high school, I got myself a little prayer mat and a candle and a little devotion booklet, mimicking something of the Islam practices, but within my Christian scripture. And, and so for me, this journey was very intertwined. And I'm not going to bore you with my whole story, but for a long time, I was convinced God is calling me towards the Middle East to go and proclaim the word of God in that area. And as a student in university, I did a lot of trips on the eastern side of, um, of Africa, which there's a lot of Muslim communities. I spent some time in Lebanon as well, um, at the Arab Baptist Theological Seminary, and I had this real interest in trying to understand, how do I love my Muslim neighbor? And yes, I'm still convinced we need to share our faith with them, right? In the same way that my Muslim brothers and sisters are convinced they need to share their faith with me. Right? It goes both ways. Right? But I've also come to the realization it is extremely vital for the future of the world that we figure out how to live together with our Muslim brothers and sisters. One of my favorite theologians, Miroslav Volf, he has this beautiful quote, and, he, and, it, and it's one that I hold extremely dear. And he says, Without the will to embrace the other, right, there can be no truth between us. And then he says, If there's no truth between us, there can be no peace. And I remember coming to the Netherlands, this is 2016, coming over. It was just kind of at the height of a lot of the populist movements in Europe. And being confronted with some of the political movements that was diametrically opposed to Islam in Europe. And I was confronted with that reality. What do you do with that? Having studied Islam and its history, knowing that Muslims have been part of Europe for a very, very long time. What do we do with these narratives in the light of 9-11, in the light of some of the violence that has happened in Paris and in other places in Europe and across the world for that matter, which has created an image of Islam which creates a lot of hesitancy and I would say suspicion for a lot of Christians. And I hope today I can break some of that down. And that's part of why we're doing this series, right? Because I want to understand my neighbor so that I can move closer towards him. And if I understand where they come from, I can possibly, it possibly breaks down some of those, those fears and hesitancies I have. And I can tell you, every single Muslim I know is a person of extreme humility, kindness, and hospitality. And I hope as you meet your Muslim brothers and sisters, those would be your experiences as well. But before we get there, let's just talk about what do they actually believe and, and how they view the world. 
Normally, I would put up a slide of the biblical timeline. I just don't have it today. Sorry, I was a bit late with giving authority to Julie, so that's completely my fault. But normally, I put up a timeline all the way from Abraham through to the life of Jesus, and we depicted where Hinduism and Buddhism falls on that timeline. So we started off with Abraham about 2,000 years ago, where the, the Vedas of Hinduism was also kind of starting to be formulated around that same period. Jump a bit forward, the Babylonian exile is more or less when these, th- oh, sorry, the time of David, these were formulated into texts. Around the Babylonian exile, you have the life of um, Siddhartha Gautama, who's the, the leader of Buddhism or the founder thereof. And then these things started to be formalized around the time of Jesus in terms of a text. Now, Islam, most of us know, only started to emerge several hundred years after this. And, but I just want to point out, I think in the year 300, around, oh, I have it on the slide here, just give me one second. 325, um, the Nicene Creed was formalized. And before that, you also had the Apostles' Creed. And, and the reason for pointing these things out, Christianity, after the life of Jesus, spent a lot of time wrestling with how we understand the person of Jesus, right? And these creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, are extremely important documents because they settled the debate for Christianity. Jesus is the Son of God. So this is 200 years at least before the life of Muhammad. And this will play an important role for our conversation when we talk about Islam. So Islam emerges within the 7th century in what is today called Saudi Arabia and, and centers around the figure of Muhammad and his revelation, right? his recitations that he received and communicated to his people. Now, I'm going to tell the story of his life briefly. Muhammad was born in Mecca. Now, Mecca is on the western coast of the Arabian Peninsula. Now, at that time, Saudi Arabia did not exist, and he had all these smaller tribes across the different region. And, peop- and Mecca became like this, this trading capital, so to speak, of the Arabian Peninsula. And people from all over Arabia would come to Mecca to trade. But not only to trade, it was not just an economic hub, it was a hub for worship. Because in Mecca you have what is called the Kaaba, the cube. Right? It's a 14 square meter small building, which at that time was already a sacred shrine. And inside the Kaaba, you would enter, and there would be shrines to over 300 different gods. There was, uh, polytheism was kind of the, people believed a lot of different things, and people would come to the shrine as they were trading to worship their different gods. Right? At the time, also, there were very strong established Jewish communities. There were also very strong Christian communities. And this is the context in which Muhammad was raised. Now, Muhammad's early life was extremely tragic. His father passed away before he was born. I think before the age of six, his mother also passed away. He went to live with his grandfather. He passed away. So he was actually raised by his uncle, who was a trader. So Muhammad would travel with his uncle as a tradesman. And by all accounts, he was an excellent businessman. Right? And had a reputation as a trustworthy tradesman and, and so forth. But now you can imagine for yourself his encounter with all of these different religions and asking questions about that. Muhammad was an extremely curious in terms of his spirituality, but it was also deeply spiritual. And so he asked questions about what do all these religions mean? 
And the two faiths which intrigued him the most was Judaism and Islam. Why? Because they professed faith in one God. And so you see in his life, he was reading, or not, that's one of the things Muhammad was, was illiterate, and we'll come back to that in a second why that's important. But he familiarized himself with the stories and the traditions of Judaism and Christianity. Right? And he became increasingly, how was the word? This unrested about this polytheism that marked Mecca. Now, Around the age of 40, Muhammad increasingly withdraws from, from society, spending time in isolation in the mountains, and specifically in, the, in Mount Hira, where there was a cave which overlooked all of Mecca. And this is where he would pray and meditate and consider, contemplate life. And around the age of 40, he has this sensation, this experience of something pressing down on his chest, and he hears the word recite. Right? I think the word is ikra, if I remember correctly in Arabic. Right? Recite. And Muhammad is initially startled by this, and he's like, what is that? And the word comes to him again, recite. And so starts the beginning of what is known as the Quran, where Muhammad receives, over the course of, the next, of his life, various revelations from what Muslims believe is the angel Gabriel, Gabriel giving them the word of God. Now, it's, it's quite funny actually, Muhammad, he gets these revelations and initially he thinks he's going mad, right? So he goes and tells his friends and his wife, I'm, getting these, I'm hearing these words, what do I do with them? I think I'm possessed or something. And he's very unsettled by this. But his wife is one of his first followers um, believers that this is not, he's not just receiving a word, he's, receive, he's the next prophet in line of all the prophets of Judaism and Christianity to receive the word of God. Right? A unique revelation comes to him. And he starts sharing it with his friends. And his friends start writing it down, which becomes the Quran, which we have today. Quran meaning recitation. I forgot to mention this, at the age of 25, Muhammad got married um, to a, a very wealthy widow um, who he actually worked for as a trader. They had six children, two sons who died in infancy, and four daughters. Now, now because Muhammad was receiving these revelations, right, about this one true God, it put him into tension and contention with the pluralist traditions of Mecca. So much so that people actually hatched a plot to have him assassinated. And so some of his followers, there were about 40 families, some of them have moved to another town, which we call today Medina. And after the assassination plot, his wife has died as well by this time. He actually relocates after an invitation to Medina. Now, this is a really big... Oh, my screen is all over the place again, sorry. In, in Islam, this is called the Hijra, right? the move from Mecca to Medina. And it's a very significant moment. Today, Muslims actually use this as the turning point in their calendar. Right? So that's kind of where their year starts, is the marking of this event. 
right? So we're, we as Christians, we kind of, our calendar centers around the person of Jesus, right? Before the year of our Lord and after the year of our Lord. For Muslims, this is the Hijra, right? Before the Hijra and after the Hijra, right? And the dates also don't follow ours. This is just a little bit trivial things on the side. All right, they follow a lunar calendar where we follow the Gregorian calendar. But so Muhammad enters Medina and the whole town of Medina, the, name, the city's name gets changed to Medina when he actually arrives. And the whole town of Medina converts to Islam, accept the teachings of Muhammad. And Muhammad continues to receive revelations during this time, very specifically actually on how to run a city-state, a city that is run by God's laws. And the revelations during this time really has to do with what do I do with people who have not accepted Islam as it is taught by Muhammad? What do I do? What is the right and wrong actions of different people? So very focused on building an Islamic community. So a lot of laws and governance going on there. But then at the time, I mentioned earlier, the Arabian Peninsula had a whole host of different tribes. And yes, these tribes were trading with each other, but they were also constantly fighting with each other. So not only was Muhammad a spiritual leader, he became a political leader, but he also became a military leader at the time. Because he had to. There was conflicts happening between Medina and the different tribes. And especially between Medina and Mecca. So, and there's also, so you can almost imagine for yourself, at this time, Muhammad is also getting different recitations or words from, from Gabriel, as Muslims believe, about how to wage conflict. What are the grounds of conflict, the justifications of conflict? So that's why there is very reasonable understanding why there are texts about violence in the Quran, given the context in which it was birthed. So around the year 630, Muhammad raises an army of about 10,000 Muslims to retake Mecca. And the story goes that they approached Mecca and the whole city just surrendered. Right? Different accounts say there were small acts of violence, but for the most part, the city gave up to, just surrendered to Muhammad and his uh, men. And the first thing Muhammad does, he goes to this Kaaba, the cube, which is the most sacred shrine in Islam. And the first thing he does, he clears it of all the idol worship and all the images of foreign gods and declares it to be a place of worship for the one true God. Right. And, and, and this is really foundational for us because I'll explain to you in a second, this idea of the one God is the biggest contention with Christianity as well. Interesting, the, the Kaaba, Muslims believe, was built by Abraham, right? And they also believe that it was built on the foundation of an old, even older shrine dating back to Adam. That was built to God. So, let's talk about some of their core beliefs for a second. The first one being the Shahada, which is the most important profession for Muslims. Which is basically, it, it sounds very similar to the Shema. The Shema in, in, in the Old Testament, the Lord your God is one. And you will only worship Him with all your heart, mind, and soul. Right? That's the Shema in, in the Old Testament. In, in Islam, it is, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. 
right? And that is the profession. If you become Muslim, that is the profession you need to make. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. Now, now interesting, the, the word Allah there is just the Arabic word for God. It's, it's, that's not denote, at least in that, in that context, that's not denote another entity, right? That's very important. And Christians and Jews to this day, when they pray and worship, they worship Allah, right, in Arabic. So it's just the language and the same that you have Deus in Spanish, for example. Um, I'm not really sure if that's Spanish or Portuguese, but there we go. Um, anyway, so the word Islam, just going a bit further on that. The word Islam and Muslim comes from the root stem in Arabic, SLM. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, actually, but which means to surrender or to submit. I think most of you have heard these ideas. But it also has a very similar form in Hebrew, shalom. Right? In Arabic, you get that as well, which denotes peace. Right? And the idea for Muslims is, I surrender my whole being to the will of God so that I can experience peace. Right? And if I say that, it sounds very similar to our Christian affirmations as well. And I'll get to that in a moment. But a Muslim is someone who submits to the will of God. That is what it is. And so if you look at Muslims praying, how do they pray? They, they go flat on the ground, face on the ground. It's such an image of that submission, that surrender to the will of God. The second thing is just on the Quran. Now, the Quran for Muslims is the literal word of God. Right? It is without fault, without error, it is the final revelation of God to us. Right? That's what Muslims believe. Right? And it's interesting, the, the Quran contains parts of the Torah from the, the first five books in the Old Testament, contains some parts of the Psalms. It actually contains a lot of parts of the Gospels. But Muslims view our texts as being tainted, as being changed. Right? Somewhere we erred in our translation or transmitting thereof. The Quran, it, they believe, is without error and is the final correction given to Abraham for humanity. That is what Muslims believe. Now, for them, very importantly, that is only in the Arabic. Right? So in, normally when people become Muslim, they actually learn, teach them Arabic so that they can read God's word in Arabic. A translation is not considered God's word. Very important, right? For Muslims, that is an important distinction to make. But I think very important, in, in, even in the Quran itself, Christians and Jews are very highly esteemed, respected as people of the book, right? Um, but it is, so the Quran is about the length of the New Testament, consists of 140 chap or 114 chapters or surahs, and they're organized from longest to shortest, um, and for that reason, it can actually be confusing to read because it doesn't follow any chronological order or by topic or anything like that. It just from longest to order. Um, so I want to jump to what Muslims call the five pillars of Islam. And these are the practices. If you're a Muslim, these are the five things that you are expected to do. And the first one is the shahada, which we just spoke about, is that profession of faith. Allah is the only God, and Muhammad is his messenger. The second to that is salat, that is prayer. So most of us know that, have heard or at least seen in the movies, the call to prayer where you hear the mosque siren go off and the announcement go off in the morning five times a day, 
and Muslims are called to pray five times a day. Um, and I, I maybe just want to highlight this. For me, it's actually so beautiful. It, in, in the announcement they make, they first, they t- twice they say, Allah Akbar, which is Allah is great. And then they make the, the faith confession. Then it's a come to prayer, come to salvation. Prayer is better than sleep. Allah is great. No God but Allah. Right? And there's a whole ritual and practices around that. You can't just pray. You first need to go through a cleansing ritual and wash your hands in certain ways. And um, you always pray in the direction of Mecca. And I need to clarify this. This for Muslims have as a unifying factor, right? Praying towards Muslims. All Muslims pray towards Mecca. And it's not because they worship Mecca or the Kaaba. That's very important. Muslims don't do that, right? But it is a unifying factor in the Muslim community that we all pray in the same direction. The third pillar is called Psalm, that is fasting. So this is normally during the month of Ramadan. For that whole month, Muslims would not eat during the course of the day. So normally they'll wake up very early for a breakfast. But then during the course of the day until late in the evening, they will not eat, drink, um, have sex, or smoke during that period. Or at least that's in concept. All right. The fourth pillar is called zakat, that is charity, giving. And I just want to read a verse there from the Quran there, Surah 2, verse 177. It says, it is righteous to spend your substance out of love for God, for your kin, for your orphans, for the needy, for the wayfarer, for those who ask, and for the ransom of slaves. So most Muslims have the practice of, I give 2.5% of my income to different charities or to the mosque. And then the fifth pillar there is Hajj, which is pilgrimage, which you have these, it's, uh, it's normally in a specific time of year where a lot of Muslims travel towards Mecca. And the idea is that all Muslims should within their lifetime make every effort, as it, uh, if it is within their means, to travel to Mecca on pilgrimage. Now, I want to use these five pillars as a point of agreement for us as Christians. Because I think if I, as I go through these five, I think most of us can, I, I can actually see that within my Christian life as well, or should be part of my Christian life as well. So taking the first one, the Shahada, there is no God but Allah. Right? I think we can agree with that part. There is only one God as Christians. That is something we affirm wholeheartedly. There is only one God. Right? Obviously, the second part we would kind of disagree with, um, and I'll get to that in a sec. All right, the second one being being salat prayer, and this is something I deeply value of Islam. Although it is very ritualistic and structured for, for Muslims, they're not limited to those five times of prayer. And I know from my personal life, praying more than once in a day is a tough job to create those routines and those rhythms in my own life. And yet Scripture invites you and me to pray continually, to pray without ceasing, to pray. And yes, prayer looks slightly different for us and them, but we are invited to pray as Christians. Fasting is something we as Christians are called to do as well, and is an important spiritual discipline. Normally we practice it during the time of Lent, just before Easter. And um, zakat, charity, is something we as Christians do as well. A lot of people have the idea of 10%, but the idea of sacrificial giving to those around me, giving to those in need, is a very, very core Christian idea. And then Hajj is not really a Christian principle, but I've been to to Jerusalem and uh, Bethlehem and to the Sea of Galilee, and I can really encourage you, if you ever have that opportunity, to actually do that. 
Because it does something to your faith in connecting the stories of Jesus and the place. It just does something. Right? And it's a beautiful experience if you allow it to be. Now, jumping to our points of disagreement. And this really comes down to the understanding of the person Jesus. Right? There are a lot of other distinctions, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to focus on Jesus. And it has to do with in Islam, Jesus is a great prophet, right? He is not the son of God. He is a great prophet. He is considered to be um, born of a virgin. He has done great miracles. He is a great teacher of wisdom and insights, but he is not the son of God. That's very, very important for us. And that really has to do almost with Muhammad's objection to, uh, to um, polytheism. Because Christianity made the claim that Jesus is the Son of God. So you have Jesus, and you have the Holy Spirit, and you have the Father. This just sounds confusing and hard to explain for Christians even, and for somebody who's not a Christian, even harder to conceptualize. And I think on those grounds, Muhammad rejected Christianity and the notion of the Son of God. And so, so, so I said earlier that the Muslims believe in the gospel, in the life of Jesus, right? But Muslims believe that Jesus never died on the cross because God would never do that to one of his prophets. And somehow God miraculously saved Jesus from the cross and somebody else died there in his stead, all right? Which is actually, for me, a bit of a difficult thing because all of the texts we have of that time all point to kind of the fact that Jesus died on the cross, And so for us as Christians, we hold to the fact that God wants to make himself known. And in fact, makes himself known. I say that every week. That is the one thing that distinguishes Christianity from all the other religions. Is that God wants to make himself known to us. And is the one who moves towards us. And, and Jesus is that belief that God somehow incarnated himself into the person of Jesus. Became fully human. That's what the, the creeds so beautifully confess. Jesus was fully human. And as we reflect on that scripture I read in the beginning, he had to die. Because if he didn't die, everything else we believe is kind of worthless. That hinges on the fact that the Son of God died for you and me. That is something we as Christians hold very dear. I'm going to skip that. And I want to because I think my time is actually almost over. I have no idea of time. But I want to quickly answer the question of violence and Islam. Because it's an important one, because that is probably the one thing that prevents a lot of Christians from engaging with our Muslim brothers and sisters. And I'm no expert in this. There's a, there's a really good book by um, uh, Fields of Blood. What's her name? Can't remember the, I've got it here. Karen Armstrong. Fields of Blood. If you're interested in the topic of religious violence, go and get that book. All right, Fields of Blood by Karen Armstrong. But she makes. I'm going to get to general to that in a second. Remember that I said that in Islam it has texts that were originated within the context of conflict, and it has those. Christianity 
has those. Almost every major religion has texts of conflict within them. And the really critical question that you and I need to ask, do the actions of a few people represent the entire religion? So, for instance, take 9-11. Do the actions, or ISIS, or any of those things, do the actions of those groups accurately represent the 1.9 billion Muslims in the world? Yes or no? And then you can ask, if you ask this question to Muslims, they'll very quickly point out to the fact that Muslims by far kill more Muslims than any other religion. It is a problem that they need to wrestle with. But the question is, is that because of the text or is it because of other underlying reasons? And I'm not an expert on this, but Karen Armstrong kind of makes the argument that all people everywhere is violent. And I think that we as Christians kind of, kind of see that in the story of Abel and Cain, of the first murder, of picking my own way over and above another. The way I view things is better and higher. Karen Armstrong makes an argument that it is really much about the dichotomy of us versus them. And she goes into whole strong arguments on nationalism and social identity. That it is the way I view myself and others as a threat to my own identity that causes a lot of violence. A lot of it is reactionary. But religious texts play a role in religious violence. In violence. A lot of times, I'm going to use Christianity because it's something I've studied. You have attacks on mosques. Um, you had these in the Scandinavian countries a few years ago. And if you read those manifestos, a lot of those people who have done things like this base it on Judeo-Christian values or their reasons for the Christian faith. So there is an underlying narrative where, and this goes for any religion, that people use the religious text to justify their actions. And the importance thereof comes back to theology importance of reading texts within their whole. It is important for us as Christians, as Muslims, as Buddhists, Hindus, to really sit with our texts. And I can't do that for other religions, I can only do it for Christianity. To make sense of the text of violence that are there, and to know that it goes against the spirit of the whole text. That is important. And I love Jesus' response to violence. We spoke about it the other day. Jesus teaching us to turn the other cheek. Jesus who says, love your enemy. Romans that teaches us that Jesus, whilst we were enemies of him, became man and gave his life for us. This idea of self-sacrifice, of submission. To give of ourselves for the other. And then Jesus invites us to do the same, right? He says, he, this is love, he who lays down his life for his friends. Right? And I'm just taking up that idea of submission again. Jesus in Luke, I think it's Luke 14, he says it so beautifully. He who does not lay down his life for me is not worthy of me. Talk about submission and the invitation of Christ to follow him. To put down our wills, but to seek his will. I conclude with a verse, and then I'll pray. Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
submission. The life I now live in the body and the life I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. I know there's a very interesting reflection where Judaism was of the law and Christianity is a gospel of grace, of God dying for us and there's nothing we can do to attain that. Islam comes and says it's trying to correct some of the errors, but in a way it's moved back to the old law, but closer towards that than grace. It is not the same as grace. It is wholeheartedly different. And it's the one thing that sets Jesus, the slaughtered lamb, makes him so uniquely different than anything else out there. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you have a wonderful week. See you next time.